Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, uh, picking up where we left off last week. And uh, if you guys would turn there, it's Matthew chapter 5. We're going to back up a little bit um, and go back through verses 10 through 12 that we ended on last week. And then we'll get into verses 13 through 16 this morning. But let me pray for our time. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We do pray again this morning that um, you would just shine brightly in this place. God, I pray that you'd take your word and that you'd plant it into our hearts. I ask Jesus that you'd move mightily. I thank you for the church that you're building in Coeur d'Alene. What a joy and an honor it is to be a part of it. And I pray, Jesus, that this morning would just be this amazing time for us to draw near to you, Jesus. For those who are in this room that are just desperate in their life and they don't know where to turn, may they find their sustenance in you this morning, Jesus. And for those of us who maybe have walked with you for years, God, and maybe just feel as though we're at a season in our life where we're either complacent, God, or we just feel like our relationship with you has waned, I ask Jesus, you bring revival to the hearts of your people this morning, God. We thank you so much for the work that you do in and through us, God, in your name, amen. All right, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be, and we're going to pick back up where we left off last week, and uh, man, what an incredible text from the lips of Jesus that we get to read again this morning. Um, Last week, we took a look at that part of the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, and it was the beginning of that chapter, again, the the first 13 verses that we looked at last week, where Jesus laid down um, what's become known as the Beatitudes or the, the blessings. And essentially, in summary, here's what Jesus says. He says, let me paint a, paint a picture for you. Let me give you the portrait of what it looks like to live the Christian life in this world. He sort of gives us this picture, this glimpse into his kingdom life. And so he fleshed out for us, uh, essentially what he said was, that your values will be very different than the values that you see in this world that you live in. And then he sort of juxtaposes these two kingdoms, that you have this kingdom of the earth, and then you've got this kingdom of heaven that Jesus reigns over. And these are two very different kingdoms with two very different ways of actually valuing things. For example, um, if, if you're a believer, if you're a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and you're living in this world, then success to you will be very, very different than success uh, might be to those that are around you. Um, you're going to define success in a completely different way. And so the world defines success through power and, and through authority. And meanwhile, Jesus says, basically, like, for my followers, um, l- let me tell you what we value. He, he says in, in those verses we read last week, like, we value gentleness, and we value peacemaking, and we value humility, and it's this very different way of living our lives. And so he paints this picture of what it means, what it looks like to live life as a believer, as a follower of Jesus on this world, on this earth. And so there's more to it than that. Like it's one thing to just paint that picture, but what Jesus then goes on to describe for us in the text that we're gonna read this morning, he says there's actually a purpose for your existence as a Christian on this planet. There's a purpose for it. As you're living out those kingdom of God principles, this kingdom of God ethic, that you're subscribing to a totally different set of values, that you will actually have influence on this earth. Um, I I saw this video a while ago. Any bodybuilding 
buffs in the house this morning? None of you, huh? If you can't tell, I am. And uh, I lift a lot. Super buff. But I saw this video a long time ago. It was this YouTube video. And um, it was when, I don't know, maybe the bodybuilding movement had kind of reached its pinnacle at the time. And uh, somebody had shot me this, this YouTube video. And um, there was this crazy interview between this like really well-known bodybuilder dude and this guy, this interviewee, and he's asking these questions in front of this crowd of people, this interviewee to this bodybuilder. And so while he's interviewing him, he asks this question. He says, uh, like, what's the purpose for those muscles? <laughs> I mean, obviously you spend a ton of time in the gym, but what's the purpose for those things? And you could tell that this, this bodybuilder guy, he just kind of like sits in his seat and he's thinking about it for a second, and um, he stands up, and he faces the crowd, and he just goes, and he flexes in front of this crowd. And the crowd just goes off. They're like, woo, yeah, you know, like, you're ripped, awesome. And he sits back down. And so the, this interview, like, sees this happen, and he, he sort of presses him a bit. He goes, you know, I'm, I'm just asking, like, what do you use those muscles for? Like, what is their purpose? I, I, I mean, are you rescuing people from fires? <laughs> um, uh, like, what do you use those muscles for? You spend a ton of time in the gym, but what is the purpose for these muscles that you're building? And the guy gets up again in front of the crowd, and he flexes again in front of the crowd. And then he, the crowd goes wild again, and the guy sits back, sits back down, and the interview's over. It's like, no answer at all. Like, what's the purpose of these things? This guy literally had muscles for the sake of having muscles. He had muscles for the sake of drawing attention to himself, and that was the point of the muscles that he had. And when you live the Christian life in this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, these values of Jesus are actually on display for the world to see. You're actually going to have influence in the world on the planet that God has placed us in. And there's actually purpose behind the influence that God grants us. There's purpose for why God has you here today. Why God has granted you air in your lungs and eyes to see and ears to hear in these hands. And there's purpose in your life this morning. Uh, in the 90s, anybody heard of the pastor Rick Warren? Anybody read The Purpose Driven Life? Like one of the best-selling books of all time. Why? because he hit some sort of nerve that is within every person, and that's to live this life of meaning and live this life of purpose. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, let me lay down a kingdom ethic for you. Let me show you what it looks like to live in my kingdom. Those of you who are my disciples, those of you who follow after me, like it's a different way of living. And then he spells it out in the Beatitudes, you're going to value things that are very differently than what the, the, the world values. And then Jesus goes on to say, like, let me paint a picture of what kind of influence you're going to have in this world. And this is what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5. Let's start at verses 10 through 12 to wrap up where we were at last week. Um, and then we'll get into our text this morning. But I want, to see, I want you to see how all this ties together. Uh, and, and then remember, remember as we read this too, I don't know if you guys see a break in your Bibles there between verses 12 and 13 that says salt and light. Anybody have a heading? 
Remember that that wasn't there in the original text. There was no divider between these passages, and so they ran into one another. And so he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its, lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He goes on to say, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So Jesus is gonna use these two metaphors to describe this influence that we as followers of Jesus have in this world. And the two that he uses are what? Salt and? Say salt and light this morning, are you with me? Are you here this morning, church? Okay, salt and light. So here's the first point that Jesus is gonna make. That salt and light were not meant to be contaminated. They were supposed to shine brightly and have as much flavor as possible. So if you look at this metaphor, it's really amazing. It's powerful. And I believe that the meaning is actually much deeper than we actually understand it to be on the surface of this text because of the purpose and salt of salt and light back in Jesus' day. Um, this is the amazing part of the metaphor, that Jesus was this master of metaphors, sort of, like in almost virtually every home back then, in Jesus' time, and today, you have salt and light. Anybody have a house without any salt in it right now at all? Anybody have a house without light in it right now? <laughs> that wasn't due to power outages. You guys all live like south of Kathleen. You know, people north of Kathleen live without power, right? Intentionally. Uh, you guys all have power. But... In our homes today, we primarily use salt to do what? To actually enhance the flavor of something. So it makes things taste better. Like anybody in here put salt on everything you eat? Be honest with me. Be honest. There's a handful of you. Before you even taste it, you're reaching for the salt shaker, huh? Back in the day, in Jesus' time, uh, the primary pur purpose of salt was actually not necessarily for flavor, but as a preservative. And so they didn't have refrigerators back in the day. What gives, right? Jesus couldn't invent a refrigerator and place it in some sort of clay hut. But they would take salt and they would rub it into the meat in order to preserve the meat. And here's what salt did. Salt actually decayed or delayed the decay process of the meat. And so they would use salt to preserve it. Um, Back in the day, again, the primary purpose of salt was to preserve it. So when Jesus says that you are salt and light, it's really important for us to understand that he's implying something about this world that we live in. And the first thing that he's implying by saying that you are salt, church, is that you can have this sort of delaying effect on the decaying of this world. There's something about you that preserves and so I'll talk more about that in a little bit, but when Jesus uses the metaphor of light, 
He, he clearly implies right off the back that, that the world is in darkness, that there's a darkness out there and that you're actually called to bring light to the darkness. And so um, let's get real for a second and admit something that's maybe difficult for us to admit. When, when Christians start talking like this, people often reject Christianity. Like they don't want to have anything to do, it, do with it when we start talking about the world being in darkness. Like, why do you guys always have this negative opinion on the world? The world is dark, and the, the, the world is deprived, and de- depraved, and it's so gloomy, and yada, yada, yada. Like, can't we just talk about the positive things? Can't we just focus on positive things? Why do you guys have to be so negative? And people actually get turned off towards Christianity as a result of us always talking about this darkness. And the reality is that, that some of us turn a blind eye to actually the, the, the negative or the harsh reality that this is a fallen world that you and I live in. This world has some big, big problems, and it's had some big, big problems for a long, 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 long time, right? There's evil in this world. There's suffering in this world. And, and so to ignore those things, to ignore that there's evil and suffering, to ignore that the world we live in is a dark place, is to say that there's no darkness and, and actually be exempt from finding a solution to the problem. If you don't believe that there's a problem, then you're not going to look at the ways that you can provide a solution for it. We won't help. Um, Anybody ever heard of Ravi Zacharias? He's amazing, isn't he? Uh, Some of you have probably seen this video, but um, Ravi was speaking at this college, and he was kind of engaged in this question and answer time with some of the students from this college. I think it was the University of Pennsylvania, if I remember right. And um, Ravi had just gotten done speaking about how like, humanity needs this anchor for morality, for, for ourselves. Like We need something to help us. We need to be grounded in something. We need that north star sort of in our life, something that is grounding us, that's anchoring us, something that we can look to that actually guides us outside of us just guiding ourselves. And so um, Ravi's whole premise in this discussion he was getting was that the, the Bible should be the basis for our morality, that it is the, this anchor. It's what grounds us. And so during this question and answer time, the student walks up to the mic, and he asks this question, like kind of more, maybe more so of a statement. But he comes up to the mic, and he says, what are you so afraid of? Why are you so fearful of well, he says, subjective moral reasoning. Why are you so afraid of, uh, of this morality that we can sort of find on our own and develop ourselves? Like if something is subjective, then it's kind of like the statement, like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, anybody ever looked at a piece of art before and you went, that thing is so amazing. And the person next to you is like, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Or vice versa, like, that is so ugly. And somebody's like, oh, I absolutely love that, you know? This is subjectivity. And so this guy asks Ravi, like, what, what are you so afraid of? Why are you so afraid that you have to ground yourself in something else? Why can't you just kind of be subjective? Why do you have to, what he says, why do you have to make this appeal to something that's objective? Um, something outside of who we are as humans to tell us right from wrong. What are you afraid of? And then the guy goes on to make this statement. He says, do you think we're all going to become rapists? Like, that's not going to happen. So in other words, he, he like implies, like, we don't need something out of us to tell us right from wrong. We can sort of determine that for ourselves. It's a really interesting interview. You should go watch it. And Ravi's sitting down, and he, he's asked this question, and the dude's just so gracious. 
um, and, and tactful and super, super smart. And he just like takes his time. Like, I, I don't know if I could have handled it like he did. And he just like gets up out of his chair and he walks forward on the stage and he looks at the guy and he goes, do you lock your doors at night? And uh, like the whole place just erupts. People are laughing. And um, his point was this, like if you wanna play this sort of subjective morality game that you can play, we're all in trouble. Because the world's not gonna get any better. It's just gonna get more and more chaotic. And so then Ravi makes a statement that it's not, he says, it's not that I'm fearful. He says, he said, did you know that we killed more people in the 20th century than the 19th century, the 19 uh, others put together? More in the 20th century. So he says, if morality is subjective, then you have nothing stopping anybody from slinging a bullet through your head because they believe it's the moral thing to do. It was a crazy statement. And the guy just kind of stops dead in his tracks. It was just such an interesting combo. But the point was this. I remember watching that and thinking, man, that's interesting. That, that So many people nowadays want to have this subjective view to morality. Just like let people choose for themselves what's moral and don't be grounded to anything else. And the, the, there's a problem in this world, isn't there? Like we can't deny that there's an issue. We can't deny that the world that we live in is actually a dark place. And so well, one of the commentaries that I've really enjoyed reading with regards to the Sermon on the Mount was written by a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And uh, this amazing English preacher back in the day. And I wanted to read you guys this excerpt of what he says about this passage. He says, our Lord not only pronounces that the world is in a state of darkness, he goes so far as to say that nobody but a Christian can give any helpful advice, knowledge, or instructions with respect to it. That is our proud claim and boast as Christian people. The greatest thinkers and philosophers are completely baffled at this present time, and I could easily give you many quotations from their writings to prove that. I care not where you look in the realm of pure science or philosophy with regard to these ultimate questions. The writers are completely at a loss to explain or understand their own century. This is because their controlling theory was that all men needed was more knowledge. If we just had more knowledge, we could get this whole thing straightened out. They believed that if man had knowledge, he would inevitably apply it to the solution of his difficulties but patently, man is not, going, is not doing that. He has the knowledge, but he's not applying it, and that is exactly where the thinkers are baffled. They do not understand the real problem of man. They're not able to tell us what is responsible for the present state of the world, and still less, therefore, are they able to tell us what, we can, what can be done about it. Like, what an awesome point. Like, he goes on to say that the, the, the best thinkers can do in our time is analyze the problem, but, but they actually have no answers when it comes to what the problem is. There's no solutions. Like, what's the source? What's the real problem? What's the hard root of humanity that actually gives way to this darkness that you and I talk about, that we read about, the, the, this evil that we see in the world? And so the, the, these people are great at analyzing things, but ultimately, who's responsible for this? What's the problem? And the Bible actually tells us that the root of the problem is sin. That, that people are, are, are great at analyzing sin, but not at telling us what we should actually do about it. 
what the solution is. And so we, we actually end up fooling ourselves into thinking that more knowledge leads to greater meaning and purpose in our life. So we puff ourselves up and fill our heads with all these knowledge because somehow that gives us meaning and purpose. If you don't understand that there's darkness in this world, church, if you don't understand that there's evil, if you reject this idea or, or if you want to turn a blind eye to it, there's actually no, no hope in us actually helping to set things right. And so this message that Jesus is giving to these people, understand this, it would have literally blown their minds. Like, because these people that Jesus was talking to were these simple folks. That They weren't like the- theologians, they weren't academics, they-, they weren't the elites. They were maybe lower to middle class people, regular folk. And here comes Jesus saying this, can I just tell you the crazy influence that you're going to have on this world? And imagine hearing that. What, me? I'm just a normal person. You, know, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And so Jesus makes this interesting statement about salt. He says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Um, We had this really awesome combo about this in our sermon group this week. And so I started studying salt like crazy. Sounds amazing, right? I just studied salt most of the week. And it's interesting with salt did you know that salt is one of the most stable compounds that there is? Did you know that salt actually can lose its saltiness? And did you know the way that salt actually does end up losing its saltiness? It loses its saltiness, get this, this is really interesting, by being contaminated. And so uh, when other compounds are introduced to salt, that's how it becomes contaminated and it actually loses its saltiness. And so back in the day, um, they had to take care of salt. If they harvested salt, they, they didn't leave it on the ground for too long because it would get destroyed. It would get the contaminants in it and it would lose itself. The, the compounds like in the earth would actually mix with the salt and it would lose its saltiness. It was no good. If it got rained on, If it was left out in the sun, it would become contaminated and the salt would actually lose its flavor. And so, you know, what's really interesting as I studied this, like the ancient Romans would actually, you know what they did with the salt that lost its saltiness? They'd actually take the salt. I lost my spot. Um... They, they actually found that the salt was actually, the leftover salt that was contaminated was actually really good at making roads. And so they would make roads with it because you could compact it and you could make it really hard and it didn't matter what the flavor was to it anymore. And so uh, that, that, that salt, because it was so hard and so stable, it actually wouldn't let plants or any vegetation grow up in it. And so it was perfect for roads. And so what does Jesus say in this passage? He says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That which used to have tons of flavor and a lot of value is of no use except for to be used under people's feet, to be trampled on, because it was contaminated. And it's a really good question. Like, what is it that keeps you and I from being salt? What's the contaminant in our life that, that prevents someone from being salty? And that contaminant 
that, that keeps you from having, uh, the, the contaminant that keeps you from having that effect where as a Christian, you literally walk into a room and immediately the environment changes. What is it that changes that? That, that, that contaminant that keeps you from immediately walking into opportunities to look for where you can actually be a part of making the environment better. You can bring a flavor to it that nobody else can. And salt in and of itself, it makes things more palatable, it adds flavor, it, de- it delays the decay process, and he goes on to say after this, Jesus, that you are the light of the world, that, that, that a, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Like, what an awesome metaphor. If we were to turn the lights off in this room, there's windows so you'd be able to see, but let's assume there were no windows in this room, you turn the lights off here, and it's pitch black, and you weren't able to see anything. But you guys would know from prior context that there's chairs in this room, but the chairs don't reveal the light, do they? You know they're there, but the chairs don't bring the light. The light reveals the chairs. The chairs don't reveal the light. And so that's what light does. Light reveals things for what they really are. And so a, a Christian comes onto the scene like in any environment, environment that they're put in, and by virtue like of how we conduct ourselves as believers, what we participate in, what we don't participate in, guess what they're revealing things as they really are. Like as we come into a, a, an environment, a room, like the light projects and it reveals things for what they really are. So when a community of Christians get together, that light gets extremely bright. When he talks about the city on a hill that cannot be hidden, um, there's been this movement for the last, let's say, 10 to 20 years that's gotten really popular, and essentially it's this, that you don't have to be a good Christian and go to church. And it's becoming like progressively more and more popular. And I think it's an interesting concept um, with regards to this passage, because this verse teaches that there's actually power when the individual lights come together and they become this bright light for others to see. So, so what makes a city bright? Is it one light? When you're flying in an airplane and you look down upon a city, is it one light that makes the city bright? Or is it thousands upon thousands upon thousands of light that make that city this bright place? And, and so if you read this carefully, you, really, you, you read that, that we, that you and me, we're, we're a lamp. We're this accumulation of lamps that project Jesus to the world. He says, a city on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The, the lamp in and of itself, if we are these lamps, doesn't produce the light, does it? The lamp doesn't produce the light. The, the light comes from the Lord. There's so many verses in Scripture that reference us being in Christ and Christ being in us. Like, he is the light, but what does the lamp do? The lamp is what's used to actually carry the light. And so it's this wick that sits on oil inside this lamp, and it gets lit, and that begins to create the light. And so Jesus says, actually, that he is the light of the world, doesn't he? And that if you have a relationship with him, that if he is in you, by the way um, if he is inside of you, then we now get to be these lamps that project and carry the light that Jesus has projected within us to the rest of the world. And so Jesus says, 
here's how it works. My life through you, you're the lamp. I'm the light. Together, the the influence that we will have in this dark world together, a bunch of it, is going to be like the city on a hill. And it's going to be like a city, again, that sits on a hill and you can't you can see it for miles and miles around. You can see those lights for miles around. That's the power. That's the influence. It's, it, it's the amazing like, power that the church has, that Jesus has set us up as these lights, these cities on a hill. And so here's where it gets really practical in verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. No matter what environment you guys find yourselves in, no matter what environment you enter into in this next week, as one who Jesus has now defined as salt and light, you're a game changer. I mean, think about that. He's called you salt and light. And practically, how does that look for us? I was thinking about a couple ways that this maybe could pan out in our community. Um, let, let's say that there's a, a believer in here that, that shows up into a workplace that they, let, that they work in and reveals gossip in the workplace for what it is, simply because they refuse to participate in the gossip in the workplace. Their light is actually shining, and it's revealing it reveals the conversation for what it really is. And what's amazing about it is that the one gossiped about actually ends up finding a true friend in the one that chooses to not participate in the gossip. What about this? Think about a believer that, that moves into a neighborhood and maybe begins to shine a light, no pun intended, on racism. And their whole goal begins to promote unity by like bringing other people in the neighborhood together. And the neighborhood, because of this believer that lets that light shine through them, begins to actually unify the neighborhood. How amazing is that? When we talk about our church being for the good of the city, I think of the 300 people that are in this room and I think, you are the light. You are the salt. Jesus is in you. Those of you that have called upon his name, those of you that are saved by Christ, he's in you. You are the light. It's not that you have to work to become the light. You are the light. What does it look like for you to leave this place this afternoon and let that light shine, carry the lamp high, and not do it in solo, in isolation, but we're going to do it together as a church. I mean, how many of you in here went caroling with us on, over Christmas? I was so skeptical about caroling. I've never been, and I'm like, I do not want to sing. Uh, This is going to be so weird. And the Lord rocked me. It was like house after house that we went to, people would come out, and most of them with their phones in hand videoing us while we're singing to them. But they'd come outside, and they legitimately were acting like what we were doing was a blessing to them, and all we were doing was singing Christmas songs about Jesus. And every single person would say, thank you so much for doing that. Some would go in and grab their kids and bring the whole family out to watch that happen. The last house that we went to um, came out for about 10 seconds and then uh, chose to just go back inside and left us hanging while we were singing. That's a really small example of something that I felt like the Lord really used in my own life to show me the little things that you do to choose to be a blessing in the city that God's placed you in. 
allow that light to shine. Salt and light, as we said before, not only reveal decay and darkness, but the last thing that I, I want to leave you guys with this morning is that salt and light also bring a tremendous amount of joy. Anybody in here foodies? Any foodies in the house? We work out tri- twice as hard so that we uh, aren't gluttons, right? Um, I like food. I like good food. When I go into a restaurant and I order something that seemingly good that I'm excited to eat, and it comes to the table and I taste it for the first time, and it seems to be kind of bland. Anybody ever been there, done that? You have an amazing dish, and it seems kind of bland. And you throw a little bit of salt on that food. Don't you get kind of excited to eat it? (laughs) Like, this is going to taste so good. Because the food that you were already excited about actually just got even better. Some of you, your mouths are probably watering and drooling, and you've tuned me out because you're already thinking about lunch. But let's say you walk into a dark room, and you're sort of unsure of what is in that dark room, and somebody flips on a light switch, and now you feel at peace because you can actually see what's there in that room. You see salt and light, they bring comfort. Salt and light, they bring joy. And and I want to ask you a question this morning. How do you know that your life is projecting salt and light to the world? How do we know that? And I want you to think about this. I want you to ask yourself this question. I really want you to ponder this. Who do you spend time with that you would otherwise never spend time with if it wasn't for Jesus? Are there people that you choose to spend time with on a regular basis that if it wasn't for Jesus, you wouldn't do so? But you see the opportunity that God has given you to be a source of joy and comfort to somebody who needs it. Um, do you guys remember when we introduced the Village of Hope stuff in the backpacks over Christmas? Uh, there's some families in our church that are part of starting this organization called Village of Hope. And a few weeks ago, we did a backpack drive where you guys were so generous. A hundred backpacks we handed out that you guys filled. And it wasn't any cheap task. It was like 100 to $150 a backpack to fill them. And those backpacks were taken to uh, the health and welfare office and given to the, the, the social workers to give to the foster kids as they're being placed into homes. And um, the stories I heard back of these social workers being so blessed and literally crying as they were receiving these backpacks was just awesome. But I remember when they came into our office and they were telling us about this organization they were starting and what they were hoping to do, that they wanted to be Um, involved in the foster care system. They wanted to reach out to the families that are taking other people's children into their homes and begin to provide respite for them and care for them. They wanted to provide for these kids that are being placed. They wanted to be a blessing to the social workers that are so wrapped up in other people's lives and other people's problems, and they're trying to do good for others. And in my mind, as they're talking to me about this, like, I was, like, so proud, not of 
our church, or, but so proud to see people who were actually intentionally choosing to be salt and light in our city, looking for the areas where they can project the light that Jesus has placed within them. Who do you have in your life that you would otherwise never associate with, but you do because you have Jesus? You have Jesus, amen? You have Jesus. Like the church is God's hope to the world. That's why I love the church. That's why I'm committed to the body of Christ. It's such an honor and a privilege to be able to serve God's people in God's church. But every one of us has to be asking ourselves that question because you see, you guys are gonna leave here this afternoon and you're gonna go home. You're gonna walk outside these doors and you're gonna enter, enter into a bunch of different environments throughout this next week. And I feel like we talk about this every week, but I wanna reiterate it this morning. You're gonna leave here and you're gonna go into homes. You're gonna go into workplaces. You're gonna go into schools. You're gonna go to families' houses. You're gonna be at gas stations and coffee shops and grocery stores. You're gonna be scattered all throughout the city. And this is Jesus saying to you this morning that you are so important, that you're so valued and needed. This world needs you, church. And sometimes I wonder if it maybe just doesn't dawn on us because we're walking around and getting caught up in some things that contaminate us. And we actually lose our saltiness. And Jesus is they're saying, no, no. Carry that torch high. Let that lamp shine. There's a lot of people in our city that need to see the light of Jesus. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was right when he said, apart from Christians, this world has no hope of having any light. None, like you're the light of the world. How crazy is it that Jesus entrusted us with that? Like, that just blows me away. He could easily show up and be the light himself and make himself known to everybody. And he actually chooses to allow his light to shine through you. He actually chooses for his salt to be evident in and through your life. And it's an awesome thing that God would entrust this to his people. It's actually a sacred thing that we participate in. Like this is the motivation for living purely in our lives to make sure that we retain our lights, that they're as bright as possible and as salty as possible. And the amazing thing about this is that along the way, you get to experience the joy of being a joy to other people. Such a sweet thing. I began by saying, you know, everybody's trying to look for purpose in their life. And this is it, that there's no greater purpose than being used by God in any particular environment that you walk into and thinking to yourself, how can I make this better? How? Everybody else walks into the same environments that you do and what do they say? What can this environment do for me? And you, church, are the ones that walk into these venues and these environments, and you say, how, by the light of Christ, through the power of Jesus, the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, can I bring a flavor to this environment that nobody else can? Those are the questions you should be asking. How can you make the school better? How can you make your neighborhood better? How can you make the business that you work for better? What can I do to let that salt and light move through me and then watch and be prepared for God to use you in ways beyond what you ever 
could ask or expect. Would you guys pray with me? Why don't you stand? What an awesome, awesome gift that you gave us in these words. And I do pray, God, that you would allow the the application of these words to be real for us. I pray, God, we wouldn't read this as some fictional story, something that we just get excited about and then go back to our lives, but something that we'd actually take to heart this morning. Jesus, may we be known as a people who would come onto the scene in these environments, in these venues, and make it even better through our good works, God. As you say that, don't point to us. We're not going to be those bodybuilders standing up, lifting weights so that we can flex to others and prove how awesome we are. But Jesus, we want you to be glorified in and through our lives. We want to give you credit for anything that comes forth from these lives and these lights that you've bestowed in us and upon us. And I pray that you would just press this deeply into our hearts as we leave this place this morning. God, I ask that your light, the only true light, Jesus Christ, shine evidently through each and every individual in this room. And I pray, Jesus, for those that even now as we pray are resisting that opportunity to let your light shine. They're thinking about all the different ways that this could go south and they're thinking about how fearful they are of actually allowing you to shine through them in these different venues and I pray Jesus that you just remove all fear that you'd give us a boldness and a confidence Jesus that as we leave this place God that we actually would be the salt and the light that you've put in us Jesus let it come out Lord Thank you for the tremendous gift that you've given us, that we can be used by you. What an amazing thing, Jesus. I pray for your anointing. I pray for your blessing upon each person in this room. I ask God that there be stories that would come forth in the weeks to come about how you're using people in this room as they just begin to say yes and walk in obedience to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.